Well, hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the RVC podcast, Veterinary Science on the Move. My name is Mark Cleesby, and today I'm going to be talking again with Dr. Kate Chandler, head of the RBC Canine Neurology Referral Service, and today we're going to be talking about the problem that is syringomyelia, which is a particularly distressing condition if you happen to be a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. So, Kate, perhaps we can start off by, uh, if you could just give us a description of what syringomyelia is. Okay, um, syringomyelia is essentially a collection of fluid, of spinal fluid, within the spinal cord um, and it is often associated with some sort of abnormality in the flow of the spinal fluid. So for example if there's an obstruction to the the flow of the fluid um, then that can then lead to the condition of syringomyelia. Um, In the the context of, of the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, syringomyelia is seen um, commonly in this breed and it is seen associated with a malformation of the skull. Um, so, so what happens is the, the brain structures at the, at the back of the skull become overcrowded because they don't have enough room. And we think that that changes the flow of spinal fluid and then leads to this collection or, or pocket of, of fluid within the spinal cord. And so that, that collection of fluid is syringomyelia. Okay, so that's um, it, it could be called a sort of subset of hydrocephalus, or is it uh, um, a bit different to that? Um, it certainly has some similarities, um, and in fact, animals with um, this malformation, which is normally referred to as Chiari malformation or, or canine Chiari-like malformation, um, part part of uh, the malformation we often do see enlarged ventricles within the brain, which is where a lot of the spinal fluid um, is, is uh, associated in, in the brain. And those ventricles are, are enlarged in this condition often, and that would be termed hydrocephalus. So in fact, hydrocephalus can be seen as part of this condition. However, um, hydrocephalus on its own is not the same, so it has some similarities to as presented. Mm-hmm. So if uh, a cavalier... Uh King Charles had this condition, I mean, what would the owner notice? What would be the, uh, the sort of sign that uh, turned them on to this or turned you on to this? Okay. Um, well, I think the first thing to say, it's possible to, for, for a cavalier to have either Chiari-like malformation and or syringomyelia and not actually show any symptoms at all. However, the dogs that do show symptoms um, have um, three main problems, um, and that is pain. Uh, it's usually pain in the neck region, although it can be well distributed through, through the body, then that it, it is predominantly neck pain. Persistent scratching is also a very common problem, and it is quite a particular form of scratching. We call it phantom scratching or air scratching. And what, what happens is, usually with a hind limb, they look as if they're trying to relieve some sort of itching around the neck or shoulder or head area, but the foot doesn't actually touch the skin, so that's what's called a phantom scratch, it's a, a sort of a wave in, in the air. Um, so that, that's the second problem they show. And then thirdly, they have some um, altered, or seem to have some altered response to um, sensation. Um, so 
if you if you touch them in certain regions, that can actually stimulate the scratching or sometimes stimulate crying out as well. So that those are the, the three main characteristics. There are some other subtle things as well. Sometimes if the syringomyelia is severe enough, it may change the gait of the animal, so the way it's walking. And it's quite common to have mild weakness or incoordination, either in just the hind limbs or in the forelimbs or, or, or forelimbs sometimes. So it's, it's a, a whole spectrum, really, but the key parts of it are pain, scratching, and altered uh, response in, in a way to do sensory stimuli. Okay, so I guess there'd be clues, certainly, with regard to those um, uh, signs and, and the breed, but uh, presumably there's a, a more definitive diagnosis is, is required um, through radiographic means, or how do you go about that, anyway? Mm -hmm. So radiographs or, or normal x-rays on their own aren't enough to make a diagnosis of syringomyelia. We need a way of actually looking at the spinal cord and ideally the brain and the skull structures themselves as well. And the best way we have to do that at the moment is using an MRI scan of both the head um, and the neck and sometimes the whole spinal cord. And what that allows us to see is we can actually visualise the fluid build-up in the spinal cord, um, in the neck, um, and sometimes the, the syringomyelia is, is in other areas as well as the neck further down the spinal cord. But we can also assess the brain, we can look at the size of the ventricles, so as I was saying earlier, sometimes those are enlarged in this condition. And also, the brainstem uh, can have an abnormal shape, it can be a bit more kinked than usual. And then finally, um, I mentioned at the beginning that the back of the skull is overcrowded, and what happens secondary to that overcrowding is that the part of the brain that controls coordination, which is uh, the cerebellum, actually squeezes out of the back of the skull um, and you get what we call pointing of the cerebellum, um, which essentially is, is part of the overcrowding problem. Um, so all of that can be seen on MRI and that really is the, the way we have of definitively diagnosing the condition at the moment. Okay, well it doesn't sound uh, too pleasant. I mean, is it something that's a progressive condition? Um, do the that sort of cavies that start off with this problem get worse and, and worse, or uh, is it something that they can sort of live with and just potter along? That's a very difficult question. Um, we, um, to be honest, we, we, we don't know the whole answer to that at this stage, but what we do know is that in, in many dogs, the symptoms are very episodic. They're not there all the time. So dogs can be very happy for most of the time, but then show intermittent signs of pain or, or scratching. Now, that intermittent pain or scratching can get worse over time, and sometimes we see dogs getting worse over a period of several months, and sometimes we see dogs who stay the same for many months and then gradually get worse over several years. So the progression itself is extremely variable. It can remain static for a long time or it can be progressive. And at the moment, we don't have a way of predicting which animals are going to be the ones that progress and which ones don't. Okay, and is it, is it just the cavaliers that we're looking at with this condition, or uh, I mean, we're talking about sort of general sort of conformational issues, is it a lot of, lot, of, lot of different breeds of that, that ilk, the Brettus phallics, or? We, we think that, it, that it, it's, it's most common in the cavalier King Charles Spaniel, but absolutely we do see it intermittently in other small breeds of dogs as well, particularly the ones with the Brettus and type skulls. Um, it, we have seen it in several breeds, including Chihuahuas, Maltese Terriers, for example, 
Um, so potentially any breed could get it at all, um, but certainly in our clinic um, we tend to see it in the toy breeds intermittently. And sometimes we actually see it when we're looking for other neurological disease and we, we, we find it as an incidental finding, so perhaps a change that isn't actually causing any symptoms at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously being breed-related, one, one thinks about a, a genetic basis, potentially a disease. I mean, is there a sort of genetic familial basis identified already for um, um, syringomyelia? Certainly there is evidence that, that it does have um, some uh, familial uh, relationships, um, and certainly we, we do think that there is a genetic basis to this disease, um, and there is research currently being done in, into the genetic basis of it, but what we don't know yet is um, we haven't found any mutations in, in specific genes to explain um, the, how this disease arises. But certainly there is evidence from pedigree analysis um, that this condition does have some inherited basis to it. So what is the sort of stemming from that? What's the sort of breeding advice that uh, you can give out to Cavalier owners that, you know, either potentially um, are worried about this problem or, or may have uh, bitches, for example, they're wanting to breed from, which you're suspicious of have, have got syringomyelia? Um, certainly at the moment there are some breeding guidelines um, which have, have come from the research that has been done um, on, on pedigree analysis of, of, of these animals. Um, and because... Unfortunately, at this stage, we, we, we don't know the genetic basis of, of the disease. Um, the advice, um, it, we can't be very, very specific about it. However, what, what we, we do want to do is, is to be able to, you know, if animals are going to be bred from, um, you know, if they do have clinical signs of this disease, potentially, then it would be very important that they do um, go to their vet and, and, and explore the possibility of having an MRI scan to identify whether this disease is present, and certainly animals that um, have confirmed syringomyelia and are showing clinical symptoms, um, we would advise that, that those individuals are not bred from. Um, that, that there's certainly ongoing research um, going on trying to find more evidence regarding the genetic basis of the disease, and once we know a little bit more, then we may one day be in able to, to offer things like genetic testing and so on for this disease. I mean, is it actually a sort of moderately common disease? Is it something that uh, one can realistically try and breed out? For example, I guess a classic example of cavaliers would be valvular heart disease that it, it, it would be quite difficult to tackle in that way. But uh, what's the story with, with this one? Yeah, I mean, it, it, is, it is going to be difficult. I mean, we do think that this disease is, is very common in the breed. Um, and certainly many, many cavaliers have at least some changes in the skull and in the neck which are related to syringomyelia. Um, so it is, um, it is important that, that we try and avoid breeding from, from any infected animals at all. But it's absolutely true that, that cavies have other diseases as well. And so I think we can run into problems if we, we try and get, get, get rid of one disease then potentially we might, may end up making another, another uh, disease more common. Um, so there is, a, a, I think, a, a huge amount of work to be done to try and understand the best way of trying to, to get rid of some of these inherited diseases. Okay, so if you've got a, uh, a dog there in, in practice, for example, and you wanted to do something about it sort of medically, um, what, are the, what are the realistic options? Are there other drugs sort of standardly available which will uh, do some good in this situation? 
Absolutely. And so there are several different classes of medication that can relieve the symptoms of syringomyelia. Um, there isn't any medical treatment currently that, that, that we know of that can actually get rid of the condition completely. But um, certainly, because one predominant problem in these dogs is pain, um, even uh, drugs such as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs can be very, very effective um, in improving these dogs' clinical signs. Um, and we, we would routinely use drugs such as carprofen or meloxicam to actually control the, the aspects of pain in, in these animals. So that's one possibility, and that's often one possibility that we would use early on in the course of the disease. Um, we also know that, that drugs that affect uh, spinal fluid production can seem to also reduce the symptoms of this disease. And examples of, of, of those would be corticosteroids, which are obviously very powerful medications and, and act in, in several different ways, but um, they do seem to uh, relieve um, the symptoms of, of this condition in, in some dogs. Also, other drugs that affect spinal fluid production, such as furosemide, can certainly be effective in, in the short term. Um, so that those are a couple of different approaches. And then finally, um, the other medical approach available are drugs that affect neuropathic pain. Um, these are drugs that are used commonly in people to control pain that, that, that arises um, from, uh, from essentially effects on disordered pain processing. And a good example of, of a, an anti-neuropathic pain medication would be gabapentin, uh, which is a drug that, that's also used to treat epilepsy, but does seem to be very effective against um, the sort of discomfort that, that these dogs apparently get. What we think, um, as well as having pain, they seem to have disordered pain processing, which perhaps leads to them having what we think might be a pins and needles sensation or some altered experience, um, if you like, around the neck area. And so these anti-neuropathic pain drugs uh, can be very effective um, to control the symptoms anyway. But I just want to clarify that it doesn't get rid of the disease, it, it just controls the symptoms. Yes, and presumably, I mean, as you say, they're human drugs, so I guess they're not licensed for these animals, but, but they have demonstrably... Good effects in a number of animals, though, is what you're saying. From That's right, and, and yeah. currently there aren't any anti neuropathic pain drugs licensed for use in the dog, and and, um, and so from that, that point of view, it, you know, if as a clinician we do, you know, you do think that there is evidence of, of neuropathic pain, then it would have to be one of these human medications that would need to be used. Okay, so um, if you're not a pill pusher, but you uh, uh, more interested in a surgical solution, what are the options here? Is it, is it something that is amenable to surgery? Or? Well, well, certainly in people, surgical treatment would, would be um, the treatment of choice for pe people with Chiari malformation, which is the, the human equivalent of, of this disease. And certainly this procedure is done in, in dogs. It's, it's a procedure that we do do at this hospital and have done. And what the surgery involves is essentially it's trying to go much more towards treating the underlying problem in these dogs. And so the underlying problem is that they have an overcrowded back of the skull, so there's not enough room for the neural tissue there. So what we do in the surgery is we remove parts of the occipital bone, which is the bone at the back of the skull, and what that aims to do is to essentially give the, the brain structures more room. We also remove part of the bone um, of C1, which is the first vertebra in the neck, so it's essentially what we would call a decompressive procedure, um, and um, there is evidence in the literature 
that it will improve the animal's symptoms, um, certainly in the short term, in, in, in many dogs that have this procedure done. However, there is also evidence that after a period of months to years, it's possible for these symptoms to come back because although the surgery can, can fix the problem short term, it, t it takes the pressure away um, and it gives the brain more room, over time, the area where we remove the bone can actually refill with fibrous tissue and that tissue can actually start causing pressure on the brain again. And so we tend to recommend surgery in animals in which medical treatment hasn't been effective or if the symptoms are very severe or very rapidly progressive because it's possible that the surgical treatment may not be a long-term fix, it may be a short-term fix and they may need further surgery. Right, and okay, um, presumably um, it's, it's not the sort of surgery you'd encourage um, sort of people to, to have a go at, I guess. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty involved uh, stuff, pretty close to the spinal cord and brain. Uh, absolutely, I and mean, I think that this sort of surgery really is, is uh, a procedure that, that should only be done by, by a neurosurgeon who's experienced in, in doing other craniotomy procedures, and because it is, I mean, it is brain surgery. Um, we, we are operating very near brain structures. Okay, well that sounds really good then. So, um, uh, Kate Chandler, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to the latest edition of the RBC podcast. As usual, if you have any comments or suggestions about the uh, programme, you can email us on podcast at rbc.ac.uk. And I hope to be able to speak to you again next time. Thank you.